G'day, everyone. Quick message before we start. What we're trying to do with this podcast is to help people better understand their mind and how it works and give people practical strategies they can use to maintain and improve their mental health. Would you consider helping us to continue to do that with a financial contribution, large or small? If so, thank you. Just follow the link in the show notes. All donations, $2 or more, are tax deductible. Hello, welcome to Minding Your Mind, all about your mind, how it works, mental health, mental illness. With Professor Ian Hickey, psychiatrist and co-director of the Brain and Mind Centre at the University of Sydney, I was trying to work out what to say at the start of our app about perfectionism. And I I wrote an intro and I thought it was pretty good. And it was about being so concerned about something being perfect that you actually never finish it. It's never ready. You keep trying to make it better and better. Then I realised that intro was okay, but it wasn't, it wasn't quite good enough. So, and I couldn't, so we're just going to have to do this without an intro, but we can't do an episode of our podcast without an intro. That would be weird because we always have intros for every episode. So, I mean, if we can't get the intro right, I guess we'll just have to scrap the whole episode that was going to be about perfectionism. So that bit of performance art was, of course, my attempt to demonstrate perfectionism. Uh, the perfect becomes the enemy of the good. Perfectionism comes from something good, the desire to do a task as well as we can. But at some point, that motivation can get out of hand and we find ourselves striving for hours to make something, an essay, a report, a lasagna, just that 1% better. Sometimes we're unable to finish it. We just can't hand it in. We can't serve the lasagna because no matter how good it is, it's not perfect. It feels like perfectionism is a type of anxiety, the fear of being judged and found wanting perhaps. Is it? How debilitating can perfectionism perfectionism become? How do you know that you've got a problem with it and what can you do about it? Ian, what is perfectionism? Well, James, I think you just gave an excellent performance. Thank you. You like my performance, I think, very much. Because you put the ism bit on the end. Yeah. Wanting to get things good better and preceding an action, making the action good enough, best it can be, appropriate thing, like, that makes a lot of sense. And yeah. for humans, pre-planning things, not just reacting, not just reflex action, and, and for the complex tasks that we're involved in, it makes sense that our brains try and organise those things to yeah. be as good as they can, preferably prior to taking the action. <laughs> well-planned, well-delivered. And, of course, we see in our world if it's not well-planned and well-delivered, often it's chaos. <laughs> so yeah. there's an upside to a degree of obsessionality, to a degree of organisation for the complex world in which we live. The ism bit. When it gets a problem, did you take the action? No. <laughs> Still working on the plan. Do you ever do that? Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, my world, we have deadlines, we have dates, things have to be in. I go to people, is it in? Oh, no, still working on the draft. <laughs> so I write novels and they're 100,000 words long and at some point you've got to say it's as good as I can get it at, or each of these 100,000 words, each of these 2,000 sentences are as good as I can get them and I'm going to send it to someone to judge me. It's very tempting to be a Whoa, and there you go to the next thing. I have to send it to somebody else to judge. Yeah. 
So that's where it seems to me it's a type of anxiety. It's anxiety yes. so about- I, I think the anxiety is – there's a lot of discussion in, in the obsessive-compulsive world, the OCD world, yes. about whether it is best thought of as anxiety. But I think in general, perfectionism, as you're describing it, yes, there's an internal bit. Have I got it right against my own idea? Mm. But I also fear a great deal the way in which others will judge it. And probably the bigger the task, the more that anxiety can grow. If it's a lasagna and it's taken an hour, there's less chance than if it's a essay for your, you know, your final year of school that's taken a week. The big grant. In my world, yes. there's the big grant, the one which decides whether you'll have a job for the next five years. Yeah, well, I said last year to a few people, did you put the grant in? No, I didn't get there. I went, what? <laughs> Guess what? It's like the lottery ticket. Unless you buy the lottery ticket, you don't win. Oh, but it wasn't quite right. It wasn't quite there. Mm. Guess what? That's a 100% failure rate for the one that isn't actually. Now, of course, in discussion with some of those people, but I won't be good enough. How I compare with others. Yeah. You know, I just, as I'm doing it, my own self-confidence, my own view of myself is undermined. Yeah. And there's going to be, in this situation, a real external judge. Like somebody else is making the decision. And I've decided in advance that I'm not good enough. So so I think of it in terms of, of big tasks to, to be handed in to others. Uh, and it might be a novel. It might be a, a, an essay at university. It might be maths homework. That's where I can see perfectionism. But can it be with simple people who really struggle with perfectionism? Can it be about folding towels? Can it be about cooking a lasagna? Can it be about doing your hair? Let's start in the morning. Mm. How many people get dressed in the morning and then get dressed again? And then get dressed again? They don't quite look right to go outside the yes. house, start all over again, haven't got my hair straight, mm. afraid of what people are not presenting myself in the right way. So people can get really stuck mm. from first thing in the morning throughout the whole day. I, so I pick the ones and, around. And presumably the bigger the stakes, like going to the shop, small stakes, going to work a bit bigger, going to a party – Bigger stakes, so maybe it, it amps up. Well, that's the bit in relation to the external world. So that, yeah. that bit's the most logical. If You, you can kind of see why. Yeah. You know? If it's the wedding photos that are following, mm. you kind of want to look right. <laughs> if it's down the shops in your rug boots to get a coffee, maybe not so important. So that's the kind of logical, rational bit of it. Mm. But like most anxiety, not all of it's exactly uh, rational. Yes. Most of it, much of what the external world thinks is exaggerated. Yes. What are people going to say? How are they going to see me? A lot of the- Remember this, everyone, if you're an anxious person, no one cares that much. No one cares. About anything to do with you. They're too too worried, worrying about their own stuff. Jeez, if you saw the people sitting in my coffee shop in the morning, a lot of them didn't care. Yeah. <laughs> but they got the coffee. Yeah. They're not the ones at home still dressing, waiting to get the coffee. <laughs> no, mostly- the more anxious you are, the more concerned, more perfectionistic you are, the more that you exaggerate what the external world is thinking about you. And and you're lost in the your internal world projected, if you like, onto the external world. No. But it's a problem. But it's a problem when it delays or prevents appropriate actions and causes distress. I mean, the other bit is not – I'm being a bit instrumental here. You know, I care whether you get out the door, you get the coffee, you get to work. But there's also the amount of distress that it causes people. I just can't get it right. Definitely. I can't get it right. So they can't – rearranging themselves or their actions to try and be more perfect. So it feels like it may be related to low self-esteem. 
In some instances, yes, but I think a lot of the brain thinking about this is not so much that it's a self-esteem issue. Hmm. It's thoughts getting stuck yep. in what we classically call reverberating circuits. You're going round and around and around the Rubination. same thing. Rumination. In a, in a literal brain way, if you would watch the brain as a whirling wheel, <laughs> there's bits going on where people are just stuck in repeating the pattern. And no matter how many times they repeat the pattern, instead of making it more likely they act, it makes it less likely they act. So using my example, if you've changed your clothes once before you went out the door, if you change your clothes twice, it's more likely you'll change your clothes three times or four times because you just won't be able to get it right. And it can be related uh, perfectionism to procrastination too because sometimes it can prevent people not finishing a task but beginning it because they're so concerned that the quality of their work won't measure up to their ideals and aims and goals. Absolutely. So you've taken it one step further. If you can't even start the process because you're so lost in the mental uh, thing about what will happen as a consequence, so projecting forward, you're catastrophizing about the whole thing, you're really lost. (laughs) But the interesting ways, so we've been using particular examples. This is a particular concern at the moment in the world we're in, particularly with many young people in what we might call the Instagram world. Because now you have all this, do I look right? Yes. Not do I just am I good enough in a self-esteem kind of way, but do I look right and do I have to rearrange myself and literally rearrange myself physically, cosmetically, you know, a lot of alteration. If I see any more injected lips around the world in people who weren't born with injected lips, (laughs) you know, they all want to look Colombian, but they're not, or they're doing all sorts of other things in really, really unusual ways to look right, to try and be more like that. And, you know, in really... Is that, that's perfectionism. Yeah. I, I never thought also, about it like that before. But, but telling yourself, I want to look perfect. I want to look perfect. I want to look perfect because then I'll be judged and I'll be, they'll be the right thing. And then I'll get this positive feedback. Mm. Now, interestingly, I think it then feeds into the thing you said about low self-esteem. Because, you know, most of us don't look right. <laughs> don't look in the mirror too much. Um, we don't. We don't yeah. measure up to some perfected... I mean, I do, but a lot of people don't. <laughs> You're right. Some perfected look... <laughs> Ah, oh, people could see the two of us. I think we could understand right now why we do radio. You know, but that visualization kind of stuff at the moment, the perfected world and yeah. the performance of that perfected world and then the replaying of it constantly back, so, it's so really, the, really become a not just perfectionism as a classic fear kind of judgment thing. It feels like there's a reinforcing uh, a circuit or whatever you want to call it that if only – I had uh, less wrinkles or fuller lips, I'd look perfect and I'll get more positive feedback from the outside world. So I do that. And then the feedback isn't, you know, it doesn't make that much bigger difference. Some people like it, some people don't. Everyone's kind of similar. So I'm still not perfect, so I need to do something else. Is that kind of it? And you'll keep going with it. Yeah. So So that's not enough. So what else do I got to (laughs) do? So you're talking about young people who are old enough to do that. How might perfectionism uh, manifest for young people younger than that? I when what might we first see it? And my, I, I would imagine with homework. Well, you do see it. So just to go back to the more pathological, if you like, 
like really obsessive compulsive things. Mm. You see in quite young children, they get stuck in circuits of things they can't complete things. Now, that's not quite the yes, same. Yes. They're stuck in more repetitive behaviours that they can't break out of. And, but it may include, you know, things we've discussed previously in the OCD world, hand washing or, or other particular stereotyped and repetitive movements or saying the same thing over and over again or not being able to take a next action. This kind of world you're talking is a little bit more older people who are really themselves surveying the environment or judging themselves against other factors, but they've got strong obsessional tendencies. They've got a mm. tendency to get stuck yeah. in their own head. But now they're doing this thing with the external world of judging themselves and believing, believing falsely that if they just did more of it to make it more perfect, the problem would get solved. But the more they engage in that, the less likely. Now, this is really interesting because we assume in most human behavior that the feedback loop works. If something works, you do more of it. Hmm. And if it doesn't work, you stop doing it. This is the opposite. The more you do of this, <laughs> often the worse the outcome. But you keep doing it. So an example of that is you have a, you've got to write an essay and it's due next Friday and it's a part of your end of year assessment if you're at school or maybe if you're at university, whatever. And you've written a first draft and then you're tinkering and tinkering and tinkering and you just can't send it. And so you get an extension and then you still tinker and tinker. And I know I've tinkered enough with my novels when I change a sentence and then I go through it again and I bloody will change it back. Then I think, okay, it's got to go now. I'm just flipping things back and forth. But nonetheless, you can't. And you know, if you don't send it by midnight on the 13th, that's when your extension is to, you'll lose 10%. And then the next day you'll lose 20%, but you still can't. And so eventually you, can't. you send it in and you're getting marked not out of 100%, but out of 60% because it's four days late. And you've caused your, you've had it, the worst four days of your life because you've been agonizing about, with this conflict between the logical thing is to send it in now. It doesn't matter if it's not perfect because I get 10% extra if I send it in today and I can't. It's not good enough. Exactly. Now, the normal thing to think about in human behavior or behavioral terms would be, well, having had that experience, you wouldn't do it again. But guess what the perfectionistic people do? They do it again. Exactly the same thing. Again, university extensions, we see this all the time. It's the same people seeking extensions all the mm. time, despite mm. the fact they've been penalised. So it's an interesting thing. The penalty does not prevent the behaviour happening again. Well, you say, not surprising in a way. I mean, if you got penalised for being depressed, it wouldn't stop you being depressed. If we see it as a mental illness, and I guess that's the question. What you say is a mental attribute. Yeah, we we right. see it as a problematic attribute. It's, it's an extension of something that's good. I discuss with young doctors all the time. It's really good to check what's on the bottle before you draw up the needle and inject it into a person <laughs> once. You might even check it twice. I agree. You might have somebody else check it, which often happens in oh, operating theatres. But you don't need to check it 28 times. But if you're still there checking it, <laughs> the person's died, nothing's yeah. happened. Yeah, that's not so good. You got lost. Mm. So, so there's a no there is an adaptive part to checking to being careful. I mean, you talk about um, revising your novel. I mean, most of the academic papers I write and certain things I write myself, the first draft isn't the best. The first uh, draft I've just dumped on the page. I've got the idea in there, but the presentation of it requires some refinement. Mine, uh, I would define mine as putrid. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say the idea might be there, yeah, but there's definitely. some polishing to be done. <laughs> you know, there's some consideration and, and But interestingly, if you're thinking about that in really smart terms, 
I discuss this with young researchers all the time. You'd get feedback early, not late. Yeah, definitely. <clears throat> you and I, James, deal with publishers. And I think it's not a bad idea to involve them early. Yeah. Ian, uh, you're off the track here. <laughs> you've lost me. You know, look, the first 50,000 words was okay, but after that, I think you've lost the plot. But a perfectionist won't do that. No. Because they that's avoid judgment. that. That's but the thing they're scared of. Coming back to the anxiety thing, of course, what anxiety becomes a problem when it's combined with avoidance. So the external judge, what you think about the external judge, what you think about the external world, appropriate feedback helps the rest of us to adapt in a better way and also to go, okay, that's enough now, <laughs> to respond to deadlines, to respond to mm. when the action is required. So perfectionism as, a, as an anxious thought pattern is a problem when it interferes with action. So, so I, I'm 15. I'm having difficulty handling, handing things in. I'm a reasonably good student, but I'm just, I find it really difficult to finish something. Not a maths equation, but an essay for English or history. How do I know, what is the sign that it's not just caring about the quality of my work, which is a good trait that'll set me in good stead for whatever I do in life, but it's perfectionism. Is the test... Is it causing me distress? Is the test, is it actually ending up in bad consequences, i.e. I'm seeking extensions and and more and, more, and my work is always late? What's the test? Well, you went with or, or. I would have gone with and, and. Yes. Is it causing you distress and is it delaying you proceeding and is it interfering with other aspects of your life? You're in trouble. Hmm. Any of those factors on its own should be a signal. Now, the other side of the coin here, of course, is for schools and educators and parents and others to go, now, hang on a sec, let's set up a system that encourages people to not just have one deadline and then right. lose, win all, lose and, all, but to have the thing show through continuous feedback. And, you know, they do uh, for, you know, some uh, kids in year 12 do a major work for art or drama or music or there's a um, number of other subjects, I think. And the teachers set up deadlines all through the year. Okay, you've got, you got to have an idea by, it's usually the end of the, I think, the previous year. You've got to be, you've got to have an outline, et cetera, et cetera. And that's really good, isn't it? So they are good systems. Yeah. And for the average kid who isn't overly perfectionistic, is just trying to improve their work, that's a very productive way of doing it. So the external world is going, look, there isn't an absolute here. It's not all win or lose. It's continuous improvement. So the whole notion of continuous improvement Responds to that. It's a two-way street. Whereas a perfectionist will say it's all about the result. I am a for you know I am a sixty-three out of a hundred person rather than look at the process. And with reasonable expectations, let's say it's a quite hard thing. The first time you put it in, it gets sixty-three, but it's not the final score. Mm. We're going to revise it, and we do it, and you respond to the feedback from the external world. And the next time you put it in, it's an eighty. Okay, okay, let's go another loop. Next time you put it in, it's better. It's an eighty-five. Mm. You know, you've got to the desirable outcome through a continuous and appropriate yeah. interaction. Now, perfectionists in all aspects of their life really struggle with that. Yeah, of course. You know, 63 in the first instance. I can't get a 63 in the first instance. Right. I've got Even to Even though harder. the first instance doesn't mean anything. Even it's though not, in the real world it doesn't mean anything. It's just the fact of being judged by another. Yeah. And what actually looks right. Or not, and and no doubt if you if you are hoping for a seventy five, or a perfectionist than a hundred, and you got a sixty three, it would be something that caused you a lot of distress, and it wouldn't just be, 
I didn't do well in that English essay, it would be, I am a failure. It would be holistic rather than specific. Would that be right? Correct. And it feeds into a very negative self. So go back to your self-esteem, negative self-thought. If you've got that, in addition to perfectionism, you've got quite negative low self-esteem. Now, that's not all. Why was not a, not all perfectionists have low self-esteem? So they're not intrinsically as linked. But there is a danger, particularly for younger people as you're developing, that they do get linked. Mm. So you fail and you try harder, but it comes back and you say, well, 63 is as good as I can ever be. Like you miss the point of continuous improvement. You miss the point of actually developing a skill. I can't mm. play this musical instrument. I'm no good at this particular sport. I'm no good academically, whatever. You miss the opportunity that many of us are not born perfect. <laughs> we have to develop an increasing capacity to be better <laughs> in the domain in which we choose. Mm. And that, therefore, lower, less anxiety about exposure to feedback from the world is very important mm. in skill development, capacity to learn and not get lost in your own head. Yeah. Causes, as always, a combination of genetic and environmental factors, how much of it can be inherited, and I guess more importantly, what are the specific environmental factors that may lead to someone growing up with uh, tendencies to be a perfectionist? So like many discussions we have, if you look at the sort of typically picked up as sort of obsessionality or capacity to think this way and also the anxiety bit you go with it, yeah, there's a genetic contribution to that temperamental bit. So you can recognise in quite young kids the tendency to be that way. Now, you just hit the nail on the head. That bit you can't change. But the way the environment interacts with that. So what do you reckon, James, a lot of parents do in response to that? Uh, Try and chill the kid out. Yeah, or protect them from it. Oh, avoid. Make Avoid, make decisions, make it safer for them. Oh, look, you're struggling with exams. You don't have to do the exam. If you're worried about what other people are going to think, you know, in the school environment, let's homeschool. <laughs> like, you know, I, I, I doubt if lots of parents do that. If you've got a very anxious kid, if you've got a kid who's very worrying about those particular parents are very protective. Well, true. Parents are, can I just say this? In my experience, parents are mostly nice people. And they try to reduce the distress of their kids by being protective. Now, like a lot of anxiety we've discussed, what seems like the right thing to do to immediately reduce the kid's distress- Reinforces it. May make it worse. So encouraging the the kid who's getting stuck on any of these sort of things, and it may be the way they dress, it may be some of the things right at school, rather than actually kind of supporting them in the avoidance of the thing, supporting them, in fact, to engage with the thing- Mm to work through that process we were just discussing and being supportive of that, really important. So the kids, young people, all of us learn coping strategies Mm. that go, okay, and go back to where I started, there's a good reason for humans to have these sorts of attributes, not to say you shouldn't be. I mean, have you ever said to a perfectionist, you shouldn't be perfectionistic? (laughs) People say that about all, so you shouldn't be depressed. Shouldn't be anxious. Shouldn't be, don't worry about that. Why are you worrying about about that? (laughs) Why do you worry about that? Oh, thank you. Awesome advice. (laughs) So helpful, isn't it? Mm. I hope the bots aren't saying that. Oh, the bots never say that. Don't worry that. about it. Okay. Anyway, perfectionism. So so it can be reinforced. So let us No, talk- it is often. No, no, no. It is often yeah, reinforced. So how do we treat it? Whether you're whether you're eight, eighteen, or forty-eight. So the we, we alluded to the interaction with the external world. So one of the things is what do you do with the external world? But what does the external world do with you? We well, said in one in education, the introduction, introduction of continuous improvement type approaches. That's a smart development in education. 
to encourage people to continuously improve, because a lot of this is skill-based, it's interaction with the environment. That actually helps. In a lot of other everyday life, there isn't a lot of that. <laughs> yeah. It's assumed you should get it straight in your own head first. Mm. So as a parent or a teacher or a family member or a carer, actually helping people, rather than just criticising them for being perfectionistic, <laughs> encouraging the interaction, like saying, okay, it's okay, look, you know, you've changed your clothes twice, you've done whatever else, but now we're moving on. Like encouraging people to take the next set of actions and not get stuck in the loop which prevents action. Hmm. So the perfectionism bit can be very hard for others, parents, carers, partners, to live with oh, if the yeah. person's just stuck with. They've got to have everything arranged in the same way. They've got to, so there's a kind of like, okay, up to a point. <laughs> but where's that causing, as you alluded to earlier on, degrees of distress? Like it's really causing distress, but then it causes distress to others. I mean, the trouble with perfectionism is, and living with a perfectionist, is everyone else having to fit in with that. Right. It ain't that easy <laughs> well, to live with someone who's highly perfectionistic because they don't alter, their world is relatively inflexible. Right. So they've got to eat at a, I mean, give me an example, because I'm thinking of it mainly in terms of work-related things or school-related things. Let's take work-related things. The meeting has to be at 8 a.m. Oh, no, but, but- The meeting has to have an agenda. The meeting has to run this particular fashion. The meeting has to stick with this because otherwise I am really anxious. So would it, would it also branch out into home routines? Yes. Hmm. Everything has to be extremely neat and tidy. Everything has to be done according oh, to the same routine. Got it. Everybody else has to fit in with- because otherwise the perfectionist is very anxious and distressed. Yeah. So that's a difficult interaction. So how does – if you so, re- recognise these traits in yourself, what do you do about it? Well, like everything we've talked about, one is recognising it in yourself. Yeah. The problem is not the external world. The problem is yeah. me. <laughs> yeah. So in the classic anxiety type situation we're discussing, one is reducing your own distress. The second is exposure. Now, actually, to reduce your own distress, you need to do the exposure bit. Although you need to actually increase your distress in the short term. Correct. Yeah. So but if you know that, if you know that, and you know that in the longer term, that is the best way to do things. It's a motivating factor. If you want to get over it. Mm. So, so we're into we're into change. You and I are into change. A lot of people assume they cannot change that. Like I'm never not going to be a perfectionist. Yeah, but you can change the behaviour and what you do. The the good thing. I reckon, about treating – like if you're scared of spiders, you've got to expose yourself and you want to de- deal with it. You've got to expose yourself to spiders for a long time and it's really uncomfortable and get closer and closer and eventually, the theory goes, the distress will go away. If if you want to deal with perfectionism and ex- expose yourself to uncomfortable situations, it's kind of – it appears simpler. You've got to say – I'm going to work on this essay till 8 p.m. And then wherever it is, and look, it's already pretty good. I know that. Um, And so I'm going to tinker uh, with it for another hour maximum. And then all I have to do is press send. Like it's easier now, just physically. I'm not saying it's easy psychologically, but once you press, press send, it's gone. You feel terrified and then usually relief, don't you, when you've actually sent it. Assuming that what happens after that is somewhat normative. Right. Like it, well, you've, you've, pre- you've predicted that something bad will happen. You send the thing in, something bad doesn't happen. Yeah, right. Actually, just like everything else, you've sent the thing, it's gone in before the deadline, you've got what you needed to do, you can move on. Yeah. 
So, in fact, you have moved on. Just on the – you were emphasizing what you can do. I was kind of also pushing a little bit here. You can enlist the help of others. Yeah. You, you always want to solve things, James, in your own head. Okay, I'm going to do this, I'm going to fix this, and I'm going to press send. I do. Just take that example you're taking. You could say to someone you cared about, okay, I'm going to work on this thing till 8 o'clock. Then I'm going to could go you... to the toilet, run into my room and press send. <laughs> could you could you come and at 8 o'clock say to me, James, it's 8 o'clock, we're going to press send? And then I would say, but what if you won't? Like how – how? No, but if you elicited my help, you, you said, look, I'm going to work on this till eight. And the truth is, because if I think about this rationally, mm. I'm not going to make it that much better between eight and nine or nine and 10. I don't really need to revisit that thing for the next two hours. I need to complete the activity and move on with life. Yeah. But you can enlist the help of another partner, friend, relative, parent. But yeah, I, I get it. But no, just- but that's really important because it actually, it allows you to do something. It allows another person to come in and assist you. Yeah, but I think what my point is you've got to set up the rules. So yep. you say that, I say, okay, and if you resist, how long do you want me to stay in your room? How adamantly do, do you want me to try and encourage you? And we set down rules. And then you'll get at 8.03, you're saying, no, I'm not going to send it. I'm not. I'm, it's not ready. I can't. It'll be a disaster. And I want you to go. And I'll say, well, remember, we agreed I would stay for five minutes. So it's another two minutes. So I'm going to encourage you for another two minutes. Then if you still resist, I guess I'll stick to the rules and go. Is that it? You're such a nice person to interact with. <laughs> well, I'm just imagining <laughs> if it was, and it's not, yeah, but if it was yeah. one of my kids, yeah. I would be wanting to help them, but also anxious about having conflict. Yeah. So you don't, you want to be seen to be assistive here. It, it, when I was much younger, there was a really good notion of the supportive therapist being the person in your family that helped you with the thing. You yeah. agreed with someone in advance, there was a need to deal with this problem. Yeah. You'd agreed that the person here, in this case, care, a parent, whatever, was going to be the therapist in the house when the therapist isn't there. Yeah. <laughs> You've agreed all that in advance, okay? So they're doing what they're doing. In fact, I probably wouldn't get into quite the elaborate discussion you were just having. I'd go back one step and go, okay, I'm going to come in at 8 o'clock, going to do this particular thing, we're going to agree to do it. And hope to come in and then do that. Yep. Now, if it got to the situation where the person didn't do that, I wouldn't get into an argument or a conflict with them. I'd say, okay, it didn't happen. Shall, we, shall I come back at 8.30? No, I, well, no, no, it didn't happen. You might negotiate a little bit further. Mm. Just go back to my earlier comment. Oh, the more you go on and on, 8.30, 8.30 becomes no quarter to nine, we'll come, you come back at nine. You've got into a reverberating oh, circuit. Okay. It doesn't work. I'd be more inclined to go, no, eight o'clock's what we agreed. I'll come in and assist you at 8 o'clock, or we're not doing it. And then as you walk out, just say under your breath, you failed. <laughs> no, don't say that, because they know that. They'll, they'll be thinking. Everybody that. knows that. In, if you yeah. think of many things like smoking cessation and addiction, there are many areas where the ongoing negotiation doesn't really help. Mm. It's seizing the opportunity. I'm going to take the slightly more optimistic. You took the slightly pessimistic, James, that the person said no and wanted to continue to argue with you. Now, if you're an influential person in their life and – they do want to change the behaviour. And you're not imposing this. You're and you're not imposing. You've agreed it in advance. It's negotiated. You're actually assisting. Now, it may be on that particular occasion, they can't make the use of that for all the reasons you said. Mm. Now, the most important thing is tomorrow night, <laughs> we're going to do the same thing again. Oh, okay. I will assist. Okay. You're going to give you, 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 and that, you, that often does. You I wouldn't say rejected. You were unable to use my assistance on this occasion. You didn't reject me. Don't feel bad about it as a parent or carer. You were unable to make use of that behavioural assistance. But we'll do it again tomorrow night.
Oh, that sounds really good. And I'll be there again on the third night. Because I can imagine it, whether it's two partners, parent, child, whatever it is, two flatmates, that could get really fraught. You know, you know, what you've said is really sensible. Don't let the argument about it, if the person's resisting, go on too long. Don't get into that, that loop. Which is very distressing to everybody. And don't take it personally. Don't take it personally. You know, I know what's better for you. So tempting if you're a parent. Uh, so <laughs> tempting if you're anyone, really. And then come back the next day, which means they've had 24 hours to think about, I wanted to do that and I didn't. I'm going to try hard. I couldn't. I, I wanted to quit cigarettes today. I didn't really tackle it. Was, there are many situations in the behavioural world where the person is not able to take the opportunity offered on that particular occasion. In fact, what fasc- next time. Yeah, what fascinates me is not why they don't do it. Like for, they don't do it for all the reasons we've just elaborated. Like the explanation as to why they can't do it is straightforward. Mm. Why on certain days they can do it that's is far less obvious. Yeah, that's interesting. Except to say what we do know in the behavioural world is that's what happens. Mm. Some days on some don't. days when presented with the same opportunity to quit smoking, reduce alcohol, stop things, stop drugs, stop procrastinating, the person can do it. Mm. Now, that's really important because if they have the experience in that they did do it, no catastrophe followed, <laughs> and they got on with their life, go, ha it is possible. Now, how do we go from it being possible and only happening one in 10 trials to actually it becomes the normative thing eight out of 10 times? You know, in my next novel, there's a character who's addicted to heroin for five years and then gave up, and he's talking to someone. And she says, and how, you know, how come you, you did it? How come you could do it there and not before? And he says, don't know. Wow. <laughs> what a good novel. Can you let me that one? Can I have the page? That is such an important insight. Because everyone tells you why they continue to be abused, what yeah. the circumstances were, what the childhood trauma was, what the circumstances are. And everyone gives you all the explanations as to why it continues which is not the fascinating thing. The fascinating thing is how is it the humans who've got these predispositions or are in these really bad places come to stop the thing? Now, I don't think this from a neuroscience point of view and a health point of view and a mental health point of view, to me, is a much more fascinating topic. Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, I I don't like the explanatory models we constantly have for the continuing (laughs) behaviour. I want to know more about the explanatory models Now, the behaviourist bit of this is even if we don't understand how they did it differently this time, there are consequences of them doing it differently. We need to capitalise on that. So then you need to go, good, let's learn from the good experience. Yes. Like what the heroin addict, what happens as a consequence? Or you you did send that English essay in. Now it's two weeks later and you've got a history essay. You did it before. And what happened? You got a good mark. You didn't think it was perfect, but you didn't lose 10% for handing it in late. Right. So I spent a lot of time in my therapeutic world, or I have in my lifetime in this kind of work, saying to a lot of people who relapsed on alcohol, they relapsed on drugs, they relapsed on whatever, and they go, oh, relapsed again. Okay, yeah, yeah, okay, you relapsed again. We all know the risk factors. But, you know, do you remember when you were, I knew you 10 years ago, and you you stopped? You only relapsed because you stopped. And you stopped. Like if you hadn't stopped, you couldn't have relapsed. So you, you have done it. And you stopped for five years. And during that five years, you know, you got on with your life and whatever. Mm. I let's mean, not focus on the relapse. relapse let's focus is, on the Relapse stop. is not surprising to me. I mean, you've got all the risk factors in the world for relapsing. Yeah. Let's not yeah. catastrophize, which is very different to, I think, the American picture of addiction. You know, oh, yeah, addict for life. You know, you're yeah. always going to relapse. Well, we, yeah. we are on perfectionism. Well, but no, but it's related. related. It's yeah. related. So this, because there's a lifelong tendency here. 
there is a lifelong tendency to be that way, to think that way, to have those anxious kind of thoughts. So we're not killing perfectionism. Mm. Yeah. We're only trying to alter the behaviours in a way that's easier for you and those you live with. So some cognitive strategies. Tell me if you disagree. As always, identify that you have these tendencies. Secondly, don't start trying to f- fight it on something huge. Start f- trying to fight it or, or deal with it on something small, on making the lasagna rather than uh, handing in an important HSC, SA or a big report at work or a really important job interview. Maybe even set up a job interview that you, uh, if you have a tendency to be terrified of them and hate yourself and even not go to them, that you don't want the job for. So you can go and practice. Maybe even do practice essay that doesn't matter and give yourself an artificial deadline. Try not to compare yourself with others. Don't make it all about the result. Big big tasks into small steps. So it's not like you finish your novel, you finish your essay. You finish the first draft, really important step, uh, uh, market, and then For the rest of the time, you're not doing the whole essay, you're just doing the second draft and therefore finishing that is a much smaller step, if you you like. I've just finished the second draft because the first draft was already finished, so you're breaking things down to smaller steps. Adjust your standards. No one cares if you're perfect enough except you. Be aware of those ruminating thoughts about outcomes, about not being good enough and try and use anxiety strategies which are available in our app about anxiety to... Deal with them. They all okay? Yeah, you called them cognitive. Yeah. I reckon the ones that worked, I'm going to call behavioural. They're yeah, called graded exposure. You said a really important point. Pick the little ones. Mm. Demonstrate yourself you can do it. Not for the biggest mountainous task you face, but just show yourself you can break that thought pattern. You can behave differently, whether it is cooking the lasagna, whether it's how many times you change before you go out the door or doing it for a trial where something doesn't matter. Just demonstrating that you can override <laughs> and you're capable of it. And then build up. And work out how to do it and then gradually build up Mm. because that's what, in a sense, one needs to learn. The the awareness thing I think is really interesting. Just just one comment on the awareness thing. Sometimes it helps for others to point it out. Yeah, true, true. Like many things in the mental health world, I don't know if you know, I'm not perfectionistic. Well... are a bit. So don't be afraid. If you think it may yeah, be people something- People are close to and if people are procrastinating. They're not putting things in. There are consequences. I'll tell you. We can share these things yeah. and and reach some reasonable try to. But, but I think it's particularly your earlier point, particularly with, young, with children, with young people, with others, trying to assist people to better understand their own foibles, their own characteristics, not to kill the characteristic, but actually to just- you know, behave in the ways mm. that are most appropriate, given the temperament, given the ways you think, which are more inbuilt. The other thing is, if it's a, a study-based thing, school or, or, or tertiary education, there's often exams, right? And in exams, you've got no choice. You get 40 minutes or two hours or whatever, and then it's pens down. And the deadline is imposed for you, and you've done them. And it was fine, like you got a mark and it was a good, bad, indifferent mark, whatever, but you did it and you walked out and and because it was out of your control, it probably was less distressing. So if you can do that in two hours, try and think about, uh, this is an exam and it's it lasts a week. I mean, you don't want to think about it all the time and be working continuously for a week, but it's the same thing. And don't be afraid, as Ian suggested, to have someone play the role of the exam invigilator, pens like down. someone you live with and pens say, pens down, pens down. All right. Pens down for us. Good luck.
Any questions, comments, uh, do send us an email. Topics for us to discuss. Always love getting them. The email is mindingyourmind2, mindingyourmindnumeral2 at gmail.com. Our book, Minding Your Mind, is out, as is Ian's new book about the depression, the devil you knew. And Minding Your Mind is supported by the generous philanthropic donations from families who support ongoing research into youth mental health. Further help's available from Headspace, Beyond Blue, Head to Health and Lifeline. Just Google them. You can call Lifeline on 13 11